Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Our focus this evening is Origins, which is a project by Charles Holland and Ellie Ward of Ordinary Architecture, who over the last six months have been working with us to create what they describe as a contemporary allegory, the various origin myths of architecture that have persisted over history. And it's situated within the historic fabric of the Royal Academy's home, Burlington House. This evening is going to see Charles and Ellie give uh, an explanation or an exploration of the origins of origins. And then after that, there's going to be two responses uh, one from Joseph Rickwert, distinguished architectural historian, author of many books, including one most pertinent for this evening's discussion on Adam's House in Paradise, and also Kieran Reid, who is an artist and is head of undergraduate sculpture at the Slade School of Fine Art. So once Charles and Ellie have given their uh, overview of origins, Joseph and Kieran will give their responses. But please join me now in welcoming Charles and Ellie. Good evening, everybody. It's obviously a huge pleasure and an honour, really, to present um, Origins uh, here at the RA and indeed to have been commissioned to do a project within the Royal Academy, which is an incredible privilege. Um, so we owe some thank yous to that, of course, to Kate Goodwin and Owen Hopkins for inviting us uh, to do the exhibition to start with, which has been, um, well, yeah, a privilege, but also an enormous pleasure, an incredible um, material to work with as a pair of architects to kind of wrestle with this stuff and do a project and come up with some new pieces which are about um, both this idea of origins and the RA's role in that. Um, we're going to talk you through uh, that project before uh, the responses um, and we're going to begin really um, with the sort of nature of the commission and how it came about which was uh, initially a conversation about the idea of architecture's capacity to tell stories, to contain narratives. Um, and whilst we were talking about those initial ideas, uh, Owen suggested that due to the um, RA250 programme and the fact that the building was undergoing refurbishment, um, that there would be a series of sort of vacant spaces that we could occupy as part of the exhibition, which seems immediately a really interesting idea, um, and started us reflecting really on the kind of nature of the Royal Academy uh, and its role within the formation of British architecture. Um, and that kind of that happens through like a, a number of things really. One is actually, I guess you could say, the building itself. Um, this is a drawing of Burlington House, uh, and. Uh, in its um, sort of Palladian uh, mode. And the role of Bur Lord Burlington uh, introducing kind of Palladian architecture into um, Britain is a form of sort of origin myth of English architecture, you could say. So even within the basic building, there's a sense of where kind of architecture comes from and the importing, essentially, of classical architecture into this country. Um, but then within the building itself... Uh, there are a number of kind of artworks which form a kind of part of the fabric of the building um, which are even more explicitly talking or telling stories about a kind of uh, a pedagogic role in the origin of the arts and the origin of architecture. <laughs> this is a painting by William Kent called The Glorification of Inigo Jones which is um, 
uh, is a space in the main staircase, which is incidentally one of the spaces that we haven't done. But this is a, is a, is a painting that's typical of a series of artworks throughout the, throughout the building, which in their absence gave us an opportunity to start to speculate on our own kind of origin myths and stories. So the genesis of the exhibition really uh, is on these spaces and these artworks, which are currently um, away, absent, and then the possibility to reflect on a kind of alternative history. And that started just thinking really about the idea of sort of origin myths in architecture in general, because of course origin myths are a sort of story of architecture, a story of where it comes from, a story at which the point where sort of building becomes kind of culture and becomes a kind of series of stories that we can learn and read. And it's interesting that those origin myths persist through both classical architecture and modernist architecture. So in uh, Joseph's book uh, on Adam's house in paradise, there are two sort of origin myths which are told in, in reasonably quick succession. One is by um, Marc-Antoine Logier in his um, 18th century essay uh, on architecture, and that's where this quote comes from, where he describes um, the building of the sort of first piece of architecture, where the primitive man goes into the forest, cuts down some trees or finds some saplings that are on the floor, and assembles them into the sort of prototypical classical temple, a primitive hut. Um, and that kind of long and elaborate story is then encapsulated in this quote, the little hut which I've just described is the type of which all the magnificences of architecture are elaborated. So everything comes from there. This is where it all starts. Um, and in uh, Towards a New Architecture by Le Corbusier, he also describes the building of a sort of primitive structure, Jewish, tab Jewish tabernacle, and he has a similar story of someone arriving in a kind of clearing and using the tools that they have and the facilities they have to construct as kind of perfect an object as they can. And he says, look at a drawing of such a hut in a book on archaeology. Here is the plan of a house, the plan of a temple. So again, there's this idea that everything kind of stems from here. So we're interested not so much in whether any of these things are true. In many ways, the exhibition plays fast and loose with the idea of truth. Um, but the, the need, really, for these stories, the sort of desire to trace things back, to find some sort of source or origin. Um, and so, um, in a way, all of these origin myths appear in various forms of treaties, many of which are um, within the RA's collection as well. Um, and so the exhibition started to develop into the idea of our treaties um, of origin myths, which is divided into sort of five sections, um, construction, space, shelter, decoration and precedent. And each of these sections occupies a space within the, uh, the Burlington House and forms a kind of episodic sort of promenade through the space. So the, um, there are a number of objects that are in each space that are then relate to or take advantage of these vacant spaces uh, within each one. So we're going to do a sort of walkthrough um, of each one of those. So starting at the beginning, a kind of introduction in a way, we felt like we needed an introduction to the show, to, to the series of work, but also it, it kind of serves as a kind of introduction to architecture, um, where architecture starts perhaps. Um, and also uh, the, the location is the uh, introduction to the Royal Academy building itself. Um, the uh, rather grand entrance hall that you all walk through uh, whenever you visit the Royal Academy. Um, but I wonder how many of you actually look up because uh, there's some incredible paintings that are cur currently um, currently been removed because of uh, the works that, that, that are going on at Burlington House. 
um, which afforded us this great opportunity to replace them with, um, with something. So um, this is a series of paintings, ceiling paintings by, by uh, William Kent. Um, the central roundel is uh, the graces unveiling nature and the segments are um, the elements of nature, fire, air, earth and water. So we kind of took that uh, as a kind of starting point for a, for a kind of contemporary allegory of, um, of architecture. Um, taking the idea of uh, the, the uh, primitive hut, uh, we kind of translated it into kind of more like a primitive shed, maybe, garden shed, taking the kind of frame and creating a kind of similarly celestial kind of scene, looking up into the heavens, um, this kind of Trump loyal view, looking up, a kind of worm's eye perspective view. This is in the central roundel, and it's, we've surrounded it with our own version of kind of contemporary constructional uh, elements uh, that you might find in architecture. So fire is represented by some chimney pots. Earth is represented by some concrete foundation pads. Um, air is, is um, represented by some ventilation bricks. And water is represented by some pipes. Um, and that's, that's where it all comes together. So that's the first thing you'll see when, when we enter Burlington House later on. Um, the outer um, uh, ceiling paintings are um, by one of the, the first uh, uh, female founders, Angelica Kaufman, um, who did these four scenes um, depicting um, the, uh, the four kind of essential qualities of, of art as she saw it. Um, and they're represented by female allegorical figures, um, which represent colour, composition, design, and invention. So we've uh, replaced these with uh, the, the um, kind of uh, very well-known Vitruvius um, qualities of um, firmness or firmitas, which we're using a kind of structural um, bending, loading diagram um, multiplied into a pattern to represent that. Um, commodity, which we've used a kind of uh, familiar um, assembly of hatches representing different kinds of uses in different areas of the building. Um, a kind of ovoid version of delight, representing delight, uh, vanitas, this is the uh, golden section, but kind of forced into a, an oval. And then we added our own one, sustainability, uh, to make up the four, because we kind of feel like that's probably the fourth quality these days, sustenance. Um, so together, these kind of, uh, we feel like these represent a kind of, you know, historic concern with architecture, but they bring it up to date with a, with a kind of everyday qualities of, of uh, contemporary, sometimes kind of banal qualities of, of everyday architecture in a central view. And here's a couple of um, sneak peeks of uh, those images in place in the rather fantastic ceiling in the entrance hall. Yeah, the second category we were interested in is space, and I suppose the particular thing that made us think about that um, was perhaps the sort of absence of theories of space in a way in kind of pre-modernist architectural writing. Um, and so we looked at sort of two particular examples. Um, one was Gideon's Space, Time and Architecture, um, which does a number of things. But one of the, one of the things, and one of the most famous um, sort of uh, spreads within it is where he compares... Um, Cubist painting with uh, a photograph of the Bauhaus and in particular the photograph of the Bauhaus has a sort of sequence of views where you can see through a series of kind of glazed um, screens and walls and he talks about a kind of idea of simultaneous space uh, which I suppose he's advancing as a sort of specifically kind of modernist condition 
Um, so we, we were sort of thinking about that, what a kind of idea of firstly space entering architectural discourse as a sort of popular currency. Um, and also the idea that you could be, you could have different kinds of space in the sort of perceptual and, and psychological and temporal senses that space could change in some way, that we could have a, an era where space was different from when it was before, which if you think about it, is a very strange idea in itself. So that interested us enormously. And then we started to think about um, uh, Colour City and, and uh, Colin Rowe and Fred Coyter's book, which I suppose in a way you could see this book as actually introducing concepts of postmodern space. But um, this particular spread from the book uh, is a very famous one, which contrasts um, the courtyard of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence uh, with the Unité de Habitation by Corbusier, where the two, the void and the solid, the, the, gal the, the courtyard and the building, have approximately similar dimensions. So um, Colin Rowe and um, Coiter make the idea that this, on the left, has a kind of classical sense of space, which is sort of bounded, a, sort of a room, a defined space. And on the right is modernist space, which is kind of fluid, which is sort of endless, uh, and a, a sort of field in which objects are placed. So they, um, obviously, in the context of that book, are making a kind of polemical point that something was lost <laughs> in terms of city-making with kind of modernist conception of space. That um, judgment doesn't really interest us here, particularly either way. Uh, it's just an idea of space having sort of, uh, um, A, different qualities, and B, sort of contemporary qualities. Um, and so, uh, also, again, the spaces that we're... Um, Occupying on either side of the main staircase as you enter Burlington House. So there are two big canvases that are normally there by Sebastiano Ricci, um, and uh, at the top are two niches. So we have sort of four objects, and obviously in kind of quite close relationship to each other. And then, of course, there's the fact that you're kind of travelling through this space. It's a transition space. You're moving up or downstairs. Um, so all these things start to inform the objects that we put there, and also. Um, when looking at these paintings, of course, there's an idea here of using architecture to frame um, and present ideas of space. So there's kind of columns and architectural objects which sort of suggest um, uh, spaces and, and perceptual spaces beyond the frame of the painting. Um, so we, um, uh, this is a drawing of one side. So you've got a kind of mirror image here, really. You've got, you've got two identical sides and you pass up through. So we wanted to do a series of works here that explored this sort of difference between the idea of the kind of bounded classical room and then the sort of endless um, or more ambiguous spatialities of modernism. And again, another thing which we haven't really got, probably got the time to go into uh, a great deal here, but was an important sort of influence was the writing of Robin Evans, and he writes about Mies van der Rohe's uh, ideas of space and the sort of ambiguities and the sort of implied symmetries involved in that and in a way the deep peculiarities of modernist space. Um, so this is one side where we have a drawing um, as you walk up or down the stairs and then an object that's in the, in the, um, in the alcove and here we have a sort of classical co fluted columns rendered in a slightly, uh, well, very abstract manner and then an actual physical column there's a sort of translation here as well between objects which are sort of drawn or actually drawn objects or a real object that looks a bit like a drawn object. <laughs> so there's an attempt to make objects that somehow have the kind of qualities of, of representation. Um, and see a bit more what that means. Um, so the drawer, so this is the other side, we have a kind of eye section column in a sort of isotropic field of um, space which is 
extending beyond the boundaries of the picture frame and beyond the boundaries of the room. And then an I-beam, which is sort of made to look as if it's kind of in axonometric projection. It's kind of sliced off at 45 degrees. So it's sort of simultaneously an object, but it's also an object that looks like you're looking at it from another view. Um, you'll see later on whether that's successful or not. Um, and so, yeah, so there's two very huge paintings. They, they, they play games with the fact that you might be looking at them as you go down or up. Uh, so it's not entirely clear whether the picture is upside down or the right way, depending on which way you're looking at it. Um, and it's endless. It has sort of no obvious sense of where the composition might end. Um, and these are those two, which are then floating this sort of gridded space. And then uh, you see them in context of the two objects. So on the left-hand side, you can see the kind of eye section. Uh, and on the right, um, uh, the sort of classical fluted column, which is sort of presented um, as if it's sort of in plan, as well as uh, the kind of classical uh, tendency to draw an object in elevation and then show the plan of it in the same drawing. So that happens simultaneously uh, in this object. Um, I think there's a sort of note on just how these things are made. This is quite nice. This is the emergence of the columns. Um, which are made from um, EPS. They're kind of hot wire cut from um, massive chunks of um, EPS, which is amazing, actually. Brilliant technique for transporting artwork because they come in their own packaging. <laughs> so you take them out, and they get sort of finished, and then you slide them back in again. Um, but this is them sort of coming out. So there's an interesting idea about, you know, obviously kind of lightness and heaviness and the fact that these ob way that these objects are, are made, they're plastered, but they're also very, very light and sort of digitally crafted. So the next space, we're looking at shelter. But we were actually interested in Gottfried Semper's concept of the origins of shelter as an assemblage of fabrics, um, animal skins and wall hangings. Uh, Semper conceived of architecture as shelter rather than tectonics or, or construction. And um, he considered the surface of the wall, therefore, as the, as the primary architectural element. Um, we kind of then argued that, um, therefore, pattern and, and decoration kind of um, entered architectural discourse as a, as a kind of more of an intrinsic rather than an applied um, element. So again, we kind of took that as a starting point uh, for ourselves and the kind of idea of animal skins, but, but exploring um, kind of contemporary pattern and decoration, um, as well as kind of contemporary um, uh, construction materials, cladding materials. Um, for those who work in architecture, they'll probably recognise these, these graphics as um, a very familiar kind of 2D CAD hatch patterns that we use to describe uh, different kinds of materials. Um, on the right, brickwork, uh, on the left, uh, kind of shingle pattern. And um, so by, uh, by translating these onto, uh, onto an animal-shaped uh, uh, skin and kind of referencing the colours from animal skins, we, we've kind of invented our own kind of um, urban mythical kind of animal, perhaps, um, perhaps the urban animals that, that got driven out of cities when we started building too many buildings. Um, and we're using these, these four patterns, so again there's a kind of um, a pantile uh, hatch pattern on the left that references a kind of tiger print and um, uh, kind of crazy paving I guess on, on the right which is a zebra print. And, um, and then we kind of, we assembled these together to, to create some wall hangings that have actually been printed uh, on leather 
and, uh, and stitched together to, to form a kind of wall, a kind of screen um, in effect. But, um, but they've been hung from, from, the, uh, from the wall um, high up in the, in the other staircase, the Norman Shaw staircase. And they have, they have this kind of really lovely sort of floppy... Um, flimsy quality we can kind of see you know you see the backs of them you can see what they're made of so it kind of it you know further kind of destroys the idea of, of kind of solid solidity and solid walls and and and, um, and um, yeah re-emphasizes Semper's point yeah we kind of took that a little bit further this isn't in the in the uh, exhibition but we explore the idea of wallpaper and um, this kind of contemporary Allegory of the the, uh, the urban animal being chased around by architects trying to make skins out of them. So you won't see that in the show, but um, you might see it on our website. I think we're on the fourth category, which is of decoration. This is a sort of a bit of a starting point. Obviously, the series of uh, many of the architectural treaties over the centuries concerned with kind of classical architecture and its, uh, genesis on the kind of uh, the origins of architectural mouldings, decorations, the kind of uh, language, that language of sort of primitive hut and timber construction petrified into stone um, and then turned into ever more kind of refined uh, language of, of uh, decoration and ornament. Um, and this is the cover of John Summerson's um, book, Classical Language of Architecture, which um, I know it's a very strange drawing, actually, but so that was the first thing that sort of... Um, uh, we found quite compelling about that and we um, made our own version of it but we also became I'll tell a bit more about what this is in a minute but we also became strangely distracted by a different set of origin myths of um, classical mouldings which is set out by George Hershey in his book The Lost Language or Lost Meaning of Classical Architecture and he kind of um, he starts off talking about trees and stuff and then he swiftly moves on to a whole lot more weird and sort of bloodthirsty stuff where he says that most of the origins of classical architecture are derived from sacrificial rituals and are the debasement of prisoners of war. Um, that the mouldings are to do with uh, both animal and human sacrificial body parts and also to do with the draining of blood in an efficient or perhaps decorative manner and that classical columns are derived from bound prisoners and that they, their legs are bound and that they're often in sufferance and they're holding up bits of very heavy stuff which become eventually buildings. So he traces a different set of, um, of stories um, all of which started us thinking about the, the, the abstraction of these profiles and the sort of loss in a way of actually knowing exactly what they meant meant that one could start to actually make up one's own content <laughs> and see what happens in a way. So this is actually the coastline of Essex um, extruded into a cornice, uh, number one in an ongoing series of the British um, coastline cornice project um, and uh, extruded in that strange manner of John Summerson's um, language of classical architecture. So we developed a number of these, and uh, in fact we drew three, and there are two uh, that are present uh, in the Sackler Gallery. Um, that's another thing to say that this is um, them display. They actually sit on a huge corner. So, of course, the Sackler being a kind of space that's formed by linking the space between two existing buildings, the, cor the cornice of the building... Uh, has become kind of internalised and is now a sort of sculpture shelf. So our cornices sit on another giant cornice and the sort of domestication of that exterior cornice into the gallery is a sort of another, I guess, layer of meaning. Another one perhaps which um, I think Owen, when we were writing the labels for this, described as perhaps a bit far-fetched. <laughs> 
was um, we were talking about the kind of human uh, proportions in classicism and that therefore kind of a, a sort of working on knowledge perhaps of um, the Essex coastline might be a sort of another way that you could talk about kind of proportion that you're taking a sort of, a, a sort of large distances um, abstract geography in a way, abstraction of a map, and then turning it into a kind of small but sort of recognisable object, um, but also something you might kind of actually experience, you know, on foot, or you might experience kind of passing through. So there's a whole series of, for us, quite interesting layers of meaning in taking something uh, like the coastline, like a map, and then making it into an object which is both abstracted, but also uh, familiar to some degree. Um, these are the three that we alighted on as... Um, Essex, Kent, and in the middle, probably the weirdest for sure, um, Cornwall. Uh, I'm not sure why these three counties have been blessed, um, so blessed with, with being chosen for these. But um, as you say, Essex makes a strangely normal cornice, Ke uh, Cornwall a deeply weird one, Kent yet to be found out. Um, and so again, these were made in the same process, so this is sort of an emergence of Cornwall, um, upside down and back to front. Um, which then gets kind of made into sort of plaster cornice, which echoes the kind of original graphic of the um, Essex uh, coastline drawing. And there they are, they're sitting on the um, cornice in the Sackler Gallery. Um, and yeah, uh, Cornwall's particularly kind of nice. There's a sense it's almost kind of melting or something. So there's a kind of that, that sort of real joy of classical mouldings where they become ever more complex is taken for us to a sort of really fruity extreme. Finally, so there's two more spaces, but this is probably the, 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 final, the final kind of um, intervention, um, where we were fortunate enough to be able to explore um, the Royal Academy's own uh, library collection. And um, we spent um, several days, I think, going back and forth and um, being presented with these, these fantastic old treaties and old drawings um, uh, about architecture. Um, from which we've, we've uh, selected um, several um, kind of ones relating to specific themes that we've explored in the show, but also more kind of a general uh, ideas about architecture. Um, the treaties, I guess, being the, the, the kind of principal method for communicating ideas about architecture um, through time. So we've, um, yeah, we've selected a, a number of books and uh, um, ranging from um, uh, Vitruvius through to um, contemporary theorists such as um, our Joseph here. And um, we, uh, we've arranged them uh, in this small room, uh, which also, I think, I'm not sure too many people know it's, it's there and it's only open um, during the weekdays, um, but it's a, it's a fantastic hidden space um, uh, just opposite the, the, the Sackler Gallery and um, within this space uh, we, we kind of we also present um, a new object um, that, that takes its lead from uh, the origin myth um, of, of the Corinthian order uh, in a way um, first told by Vitruvius and then, and then later by um, the Royal Academy's own William Chambers through a, a very famous drawing that's actually on display in, in the print room as well where he, where he recounts the, the myth um, of the origin of the Corinthian order, a young girl being dead um, and her nurse lying on her tomb, a, a basket of, of uh, trinkets, um, uh, so happened to be placed on a, a cancer root which grew up 
um, through the basket and, and, and kind of formed um, uh, these, these kind of wonderful shapes. A passing sculptor um, saw uh, this beautiful thing and, uh, and hurried off and turned it into uh, the Corinthian order. And um, so we, we've kind of taken that, that story and played with it a bit. We've, we've updated it, contemporised it, urbanised it maybe. And uh, we've created our own greengrocer's order, um, which this is the kind of uh, the final piece once it's been petrified, kind of turned to stone. It's had all the colour uh, drained out of it. Um, but this is how it started, um, a range of artificial fruit. Um, that we bought from eBay and um, this is the uh, assemblage, final assemblage before, um, before the petrification process and we've documented that whole process um, it, was, um, uh, it was a really kind of fun thing to make and, and explore and um, I believe there's going to be a blog um, that, that, that kind of shows that whole process and, and explores it a little bit further, we've invented our own myth as well, which um, we've, we've uh, it accompanies the piece up in the up in the print room. Um, but we're, I guess we're also exploring another myth here about the uh, about the absence of colour or the kind of removal of colour um, that uh, uh, kind of seemed to happen through modernism. Um, perhaps Corbusier in uh, towards a new architecture when he represented the, the Parthenon. Um, drained of all colour, um, completely black and white photos uh, in order to kind of show other qualities. But um, uh, we, you know, we now know that there, there was a lot of colour in, in Greek architecture. So, so um, we're kind of trying to um, maybe celebrate that and bring it back to our order, at least in the process. So this is the final moment where, where we started to turn it white and drain all the colour. The final space, which is really a kind of summary space, which is the architecture space, was a series of drawings which describe, um, perhaps like a treatise, they describe the sort of origin of an element of architecture and then they show a sort of proposition where that element is used in a, in a building, which is a, a fairly typical mode of the sort of architectural treatise. So you get the origin of the Corinthian order and then you get a facade using the Corinthian order and showing its kind of proper usage. So we have our own... Um, proper or improper usage. Um, do you want to describe? Oh, we'll flip between them, maybe. Um, well, yep, so this is um, theme number one uh, on construction or of construction. So the first image um, uh, relates to all the components um, that you would need to build a garden shed uh, laid out in a kind of um, decorative pattern. And then on the right is said shed. <laughs> said, shed. said shed right said shed so on the left is the sort of origin of the endless columns so the other thing to mention about the, the object columns in the niches and the main stairwell is that the, the sort of uh, elliptical base of the niche is lined with a mirror so that the column kind of extends down into the space as well um, and then on the right is a kind of proposal for a hall of endless columns uh, which has a sort of mirrored ceiling and a mirrored floor and also is actually an axonometric object itself. So it's a kind of representation uh, as well as a real object. Uh, and then these are a uh, drawing which shows the use of the Kent and Essex cornices. There's a proposal for two houses, one on either side of the Thames estuary. Um, and it's not clear really whether the Essex cornice is used on the Kent side or on the Essex side, maybe it's a gesture of sort of friendship, you swap the cornices round. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So this is yeah the the origins um, the origins of cladding cladding uh, or of the urban animal skin. So shown um, drying uh, drying there having been freshly hunted, um, hanging out to dry, about to be assembled, and then on the right. Um, Leather world warehouse, perhaps decorated in in um, in these kind of urban patterns. So skins no more, but an application of, of pattern uh, in a in a kind of um, uh, very uh, two dimensional applied way rather than a kind of constructional way. And then on the left, uh, origins of the greenhouse greengrocer's order, and on the right, its use uh, in the um, in an actual greengrocer's shop, um, so that the um, temple pediment is a kind of striped awning supported by a row of six greengrocer's columns. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'd like now to invite Charles and Ellie to take a seat and be joined by Joseph and Kieran, who will offer their responses. One thing that struck me about the exhibition is, is the humour and the enjoyment of finding the artworks in the space. Coming to this as an artist who's interested in architecture, I'm kind of reading these works as, I suppose, with a different history to them. So I've kind of worked my way through this. I don't want to go on to, because you've kind of covered it so well, but as, as, I, as you came in through the space, I imagined lying on the back, looking up to sky, just as gravity failed, and all of architecture floated off into space and kind of seeing all these different elements of material that, that surround you whilst you're there. And um, it kind of made you really think that the, um, the shelter or that working as an artist, I'm, I'm interested in these sort of um, cabin structure spaces. And in some ways it's, it's not a reality, this sort of primitive dream is something which... Um, um, is something that is nearby but also quite quite far away. And I've also really made me think about my early thoughts of um, my early sort of research in in architecture, looking at everything on, in it through books and those sort of um, isometric mm-hmm. diagrams and how we now relate to it differently with digital spaces and these sort of how you piece things together and kind of have those walkthroughs. And it kind of made me feel like I could really pull myself through into a space. And then particularly thinking about going upstairs, when you're thinking about space with the columns, and these, these columns on the, the right-hand side, which are the I-beams, which I suppose originally when they were created, you weren't meant to see them, whereas the, the fluted columns were very evident. They were things, they were there, but still about this haptic response in that space. And that eye line you've created, I think it's very successful how the eye, you'll see when you're there, but how the eye line is, you seem very low within the space because you're coming up from below. But it's like a cubic sort of central point of gravity, is your um, central point of um, perspective. And I kind of want to see what that space is like. And then in the niches, um, I don't know, it's thinking about Brancusi in the endless column and those sort of references. And it's the impossible shadows, which I suppose the digital space can only do for you. And then 
when you were speaking, you talked about John Summerson's The Classical Language of Architecture, and I really thought about why yellow is so evident throughout this. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Like, I, I kind of started looking into colour theory, freshness, happiness, energy, optimism, enlightenment, and it's the front cover. Because <laughs> it's there, it kind of sits on the ends of everything. It's also our favourite colour. Is it? Okay. <laughs> and the repeat as well of the, of the paintings, it's... Um, I think linking back into decoration, and it, I, I thought about the Red House and Morris and Rossetti's ceiling, and kind of that sort of repeated mark that goes that you kind of can't see, and the little motorcorn hidden in the ceiling there in the in the Red House. I kind of I, I quite enjoyed that. And as I kind of walk through to the, um, I'm going to jump around a bit. The skins, they're the things I most I really enjoyed. I love the skins. I think they're really beautiful, and it kind of fits in with. Um, I don't know, the history of painting, like the, the decorative mark, but they're, they're like Patrick Caulfield paintings. Mm-hmm. Or, but they're also things that you find on, when you're in AutoCAD or SketchUp, whatever, you find this pattern and you're not quite sure where it could go. And when you put it on something, it's not quite the right size. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite look right. But I think they really work. And I always find um, um, symmetry problematic. And I think so many things we see in architecture or classical architecture is symmetrical. And I was really thinking why... And then obviously the skin is symmetrical, whatever. It doesn't because it's half the half the body. So I had to kind of get over that quite quickly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> floppiness helps. But that is a, that that movement, the, that flop. It's kind of like a man lying on a chair or something. I kind of really I like. I thought they're really really good. And um, there's um, what's his name? Um, uh, a painter sculptor called Richard Smith who made these amazing kite minimal kite paintings in the seventies. And the way they're kind of strapped to the ceiling and hung and held there, but kind of not anchored, just floating. Mm-hmm. I really, I want, in some ways, I wanted them to be lower. I wanted to kind of em, em, embrace them more. Um, I kind of jumped around. I lost my order. <laughs> um, and the Kent and Sussex coast. I'm, I'm, I seem to, I'm originally from Kent, and I'm doing a lot of work in Essex. And... Um, and having walked along Denge Marsh and, and Romney Marsh and you've seen these, um, the radar dishes, I, kind of, they, I started fantasising about what these works, whether they were maquettes or models, or whether they were kind of crystals or um, geological formations that come out of the ground. I, really, I think they're really, I think really interesting, mm-hmm. and how they, how they relate to the body. And the, but then, I suppose, this, again, the... the um, Again, explain like the, the story you're telling about how they do relate to the body. They're mm. flayed bits of skin. And then lastly, the order of the, uh, the greengrocers. It made me think about Sir Nathaniel Bacon in Tate, Britain, and the, the painting called The Cook Made the Still Life. Uh, uh, Cook Made the Still Life of Vegetables and Fruit, and a very full figure with lots of vegetables and fruit there. And I love the story. And uh, Owen explained to me the story a couple of times. I can imagine it bursting through this bag. And then it's, um, and it really made me really think about the greengrocer and where the greengrocer is within, I suppose, within London, because I haven't got one anywhere near me. Mm-hmm. And I'm desperate for a greengrocer. Mm-hmm. And this kind of, that space of the fruits which are there as well, they're quite, made me think about the, whether they are, it's symbolical wealth or whether it's not, because every single piece of fruit there is very common, it's, it's a normal, there's not the um, but then it also made me think about the, the pineapple of the 16th to 18th century, the, the presence of, of, uh, of that as well. Um, 
but obviously transglobalization, as you said, they're all from e- eBay. They're all kind of manufactured products. And that, I think, is very important, particularly um, um, when we start thinking about artifice as well and the beginning of a new order. Um, and the library, lastly, it really made me think of both of you and your research finding old knowledge and kind of, it was like a cabinet of information, <laughs> cabinet curiosity. It's things that you placed out and, uh, um, and reinterpreting and, and editing. And that, that comes through about looking at your past, your, your practice as architects and, and this exhibition of, I suppose, I'm, I'm seeing them as artworks, or, which I think they definitely are. Thank you. Um, well, why, why don't you respond to that now, and then uh, Joseph or well, Ch- Charles and Ellie, um, you respond well, you to what Kieran was saying. Well, uh, well yeah, maybe is that okay? We'll do um, yes, just because yes. you raise a few interesting points. It would be really nice to um, to come back. On. Well, I can't remember all of them. <laughs> um, the last one I was really interested because ultimately I think it is about a sort of um, invention from history. And that sort of sense of look, history as a source of inspiration, which in one sense sounds like quite a banal point, but actually, I think especially within the kind of ideology of architecture, is actually quite a problematic one. Um, it's something you're, in a way, consistently sort of advised against. Mm. And it's sort of endless will to the new, endless kind of desire for sort of new form. And a, a kind of self-professed interest in designing from history is, without being at the same time a kind of dedicated classicist, is a very problematic position, but for us, I don't know, certainly personally, it feels like an incredibly profound uh, for source of um, endless <laughs> speculation and invention. So that's sort of one thing. I think picking up on that seemed um, uh, really important to me. Uh, and then the other thing I thought, just about the coastlines and stuff, I think that, that actual thing of sort of recognisability um, and scale... Um, is actually quite important. So in one sense you could see, okay, there's a sort of there's a thing about cornices and stuff. But then there were other things all about how you recognise and know and understand a place. You know, and you can kinda of, and you know, we discovered that a kind of estuarine coast makes a more uh, satisfying cornice, generally. Um, but you kind of don't really know that until you try. Um, but also just sort of knowing the you know the inlets is sort of quite an interesting thing. The degree to which you, this thing's become removed from knowing it, but well, I don't know, sort of a whole series of things which seem um, that emerged in a way from an initial point of departure, which then become kind of richer as you work through them. So I think um, you know even as we present them, I guess we sort of slightly cherry pick the the things to us that that made us do them. Um, but there were sort of lots of other things, hopefully, which you, are kind you of... You edited yeah. the cornices very hard, and that's one thing I, I really made me think about who comes to see the work, where there might be disgruntled from Tunbridge Wells who might have been edited out completely. <laughs> <laughs> Dis- disgruntled of, um, uh, of uh, Gravesend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely, uh, especially in the cornices, I don't think we mentioned we're both from Essex as well, so okay. there's, there's, a, you know, there's another kind of personal oh, connection. Okay. <laughs> and Charles has recently moved to Kent, so he's now yeah. a man of Kent. So there's, a, there's another layer of kind of personal... You're a man of Kent. <laughs> a man of Kent. Or a Kentish man. Oh, a Kentish man, I haven't decided. So there's a whole, yeah, personal layer there as well. I was thinking, um, I remember at one point I tried to, um, the cornices to, together, mited them, see, what, yeah. see if that would look better. And uh, it suddenly became really ordinary. And really, um, you kind of lost all of, the, all of that kind of um, fantastic 
um, detail that you only get with a slice through, which is a very mm. typical architect yep. thing to do, of course. That, you know, let's, we want to look at the section. We always want to see the section because that's where the, mm. the magic is. Um, yeah, I think the, the first point Charles made about the drawing from history, um, I always feel slightly on the back foot because I came to architecture late. I studied very late, so I feel like I'm always looking at architecture in completely the wrong way, and, and um, I, I kind of don't... I don't. I haven't studied it in, in a kind of traditional way, so I, I kind of, um, yeah, I, I see things I shouldn't and uh, look at the <laughs> draw things that, you know, maybe shouldn't. Um, but that's, you know, that's been half the fun of, of this kind of exercise. Um, the green grocers, in particular, that kind of drawing from ordinary typologies. We um, we write a column, a monthly column for the Reba Journal called Ordinary Architecture, where we we talk about. Um, ordinary typologies such as um, you know, minicab offices and, and green grocers. That was the first one um, that we wrote, and um, this, the story kind of you know came afterwards, and the, the, the kind of allegory that we've written in, in the print room came afterwards. Um, but there's so many lovely layers to that, and, and the realization of it now as, as, a, as a kind of piece of architecture and, and what it's made from this kind of artifice and you know artificial fruit and the color turning to you know being drained of color and um, yeah it's such a kind of multi-layered um, project it's been really good fun Joseph would you like to offer your response well like here and of course I was charmed by the exhibition um, and very taken by the yellow colors I'm wearing a lot tie notice um, <laughs> so um, I was very much in in synchronicity with it but there was one idea that was actually missing. It's missing in the categories. It's missing in the show. Uh, and that was need. Now, um, there was something about both the discourse and about the exhibition that I found slightly worrying, and that is the idea of the arbitrary. Um, Gottfried Semper, who's been invoked, um, had a rather curious idea about the origin of ornament in needlework because to him the German work, word for needlework, not, was cognate to the German word for need, note. So note not was the origin of ornament and the origin of all architecture. Need is the origin of architecture. And that is also the basic idea of logier in the primitive hut. Um, the primitive hut was so important because it is the first construction that primitive man makes in answer to his need for shelter. Again, need is the basic notion of um, of, of the, bus- the whole business of building. So, note and not the primitive hut as the answer to the first man's need for shelter. And that's what I found missing too in the idea of the greengrocer column. Because of course the Corinthian column is not just an arbitrary plant. The Cantus plant, which is the basic plant of the Corinthian column, is the plant of death. And the story which Vitruvius tells about the origin of the order is about death, about the young woman who dies and about the acanthus plant which grows on her tomb and grows and its leaves grow round the basket of offerings which are put on her tomb. So 
it's not a jolly visit to the greengrocer, but a visit to the tomb that is invoked by the Corinthian column. And of course, it turns up just as when the whole business of the immortality of the soul becomes so important in Greek thinking. So I think that's what I miss. I miss also in the idea of making cornices out of bits of the British coastline. Why not? Why not, to me, is the enemy of architecture? <laughs> Thank you. Peggy, you didn't like it. Did you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it looked nice. It looked nice. But yeah. I didn't see the yeah. point. <laughs> well, one, in a way, I'd say... Well, I don't know. I mean, you could say that, of course, the, the, the point that we start with is the point at which the need gets translated into culture the point at which need becomes a story or a narrative. So for us, that's the point of departure. The need is a given. What we start to explore is what are the, why does that need then get translated into a kind of cultural or architectural language, and then what happens to that language over time? So that's our point of speculation, um, I guess. The other thing I'd say is that the sto- I think the story of the Green Graces Order is actually a tragic story, not a, not a funny story. She also dies. Um, oh, the, the, um, the origin of the Green Graces Order is also a tragic story. It is a tragic story, yes. is it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to the way we think about the future. What is the sort of the meaning for exploring origin myths at this moment? How does it connect to broader events, broader mm. debates? If indeed it does, from your perspective. Well, I mean... <laughs> Whether it's, um, I'm sure it's no um, comfort to know I share a lot of your pessimism. Um, uh, these are difficult, pessimistic times. Um, so it's hard, yeah, it's hard to hard to kind of think that um, the sort of what we maybe mistakenly, but I don't think mistakenly look back on certain of the sort of revolutionary modernist period as one of like you know a kind of uncapturable sense of optimism about um, how the world can be remade. That certainly feels something that's kind of um, very far out of reach, I think, in some respects, in a lot of respects. Um, there are kind of smaller moments of where you kind of think that uh, things might be remade in a more positive way. But to relate it back to the, the question, I suppose, of what the relevance seems, I mean, for me a bit, it goes back to that kind of yeah, the idea that Joseph talks about, about precedent and the sort of liberating aspects of that, in a way, that the um, you know, architecture has been seemingly trapped for such a long time in a, in a kind of really hostile relationship to that. Seems to us a very kind of liberating, productive thing to be able to just work with history and precedent in a way which is neither slavishly devotional mm. nor resistant and kind of uh, determined to kind of kick over the traces. And, and hopefully the part of the point of the project is to show the kind of playful invention that could happen from that. Um, and that that the, you know, there could be a kind of joy in that, I guess, and that, that seems like something that architecture has. Uh, I see more in architecture now, perhaps, than you know, a decade or mm. two ago, where those positions were much more polarised. We will draw things to a close. It's been a, a, a wonderful pleasure to be chairing this conversation and, and to have worked on the project uh, with Charles and Ellie. And I'd like to thank them very much for their presentation, for all the work that they've done. And also to thank Kieran and Joseph for their, their comments and observations.
and uh, probably some necessary criticism as well. So, yeah, so please join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.